This is The Weekly for Friday, September 6th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. From The New Yorker magazine, this headline, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of Trump. How did someone who graduated first in his class at West Point, yet struggled early in his political and business career, end up as one of the president's most loyal soldiers? Susan Glasser breaks it all down in her lengthy profile piece. We'll also preview a new book with her husband and co-author Peter Baker on a former Secretary of State, James Baker. But first, Mike Pompeo during a recent interview with Gail King on CBS This Morning. Somebody said, you know, he actually gets Donald Trump. What is it that you get about Donald Trump that others don't? He cares deeply about America. And in the world that I've worked, I worked for him first as director of the Central Intelligence Agency, now as the Secretary of State. He wants to see the American people secure. He wants to grow our economy. He wants better lives for them. I see that. I have had lots of but chances to engage now, you, with him. You see it now, though. In the beginning, you said authoritarian, trying to turn the time to turn the lights out in the circus. I, I'm, I'm curious because they say about you, you are you are very patriotic. You get this question. You, you get this country. You know, the president is not always accused of uh, telling the truth. He's very loose with his tweets. It seems to be opposite of how you run your life. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed the privilege of working for President Trump. You know, the comments from back in 2016, it was a tough political campaign. And when I'm on your team, yeah. I am all in, <laughs> as I was. And when uh, when my candidate left, I was all in for President Trump then as well. And I'm in for America today. Susan Glasser, response to your piece in The New Yorker, Mike Pompeo, the secretary of Trump. As you hear his defense of what he said about candidate Donald Trump and now his views of President Trump, your reaction? Well, Steve, thank you so much. First of all, it's it's great to be with you. And I have to say, a couple interesting reactions just listening to that again. First of all, isn't it interesting that the secretary doesn't really respond to the question? Gail says, what is it about President Trump that Americans don't get? And the secretary's response is that he's very patriotic, i.e. implying that apparently Americans don't think that the president is patriotic. Uh, And, you know, it's very interesting that I spent months and months researching this uh, profile of Mike Pompeo. In my view, he is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful figure on uh, international affairs in the Trump administration, yet he's very little known in some respects. I spent months working on it. And yet much of the coverage in the end came down to uh, a simple fact that we knew at the beginning, which was that Mike Pompeo, as with most of the Republican establishment in 2016, was against Donald Trump, but not just against Donald Trump in a regular election way, which is how he tried to portray it, but vehemently against Donald Trump. And and they predicted in many ways exactly a lot of the dysfunctions and really unprecedented things that we're seeing in this administration. And Mike Pompeo, I I went back and I found, and it took a lot of effort, (laughs) trust me, to find what I believe is the only video that exists of Mike Pompeo on film excoriating Donald Trump. And that was in March 5th of 2016 in the Kansas caucuses. And we found this video, uh, which was never played at the time because who was Mike Pompeo? Nobody really cared. uh, In which he says that Donald Trump, like Barack Obama, would be a dangerous authoritarian who essentially would subvert the Constitution. That's not a normal thing that you say against your opponent in in an election. 
The piece is in-depth, 22 pages, available on the New Yorker website and in the magazine. So let me get to the essence of what you're trying to, to, to let readers know about. How did he become the lone survivor of the president's original national security team? Well, that is the incredible trajectory, right? So we started out knowing uh, that Mike Pompeo was very opposed to Donald Trump in 2016, supported, as many members of Congress did, Marco Rubio's campaign. He he felt, uh, in particular, concern about national security and foreign policy. The, the hardliners believe that uh, Donald Trump would uh, pull America back from its leadership role in the world. Uh, and in some ways, that's that's what he's done. And yet, how did Mike Pompeo evolve uh, and change his own views? Or did he really change his own views? So that was one of the original questions I had in starting out the reporting for the piece. And, you know, I found very contradictory answers that made me realize that, you know, in some ways, we spend too much time uh, trying to talk about the ideology of those who serve President Trump. And perhaps not enough in thinking about, well, what is it in their personality or their biography or their background that makes them able to accommodate themselves to someone uh, with whom they don't actually agree on many issues? And then also, uh, I think it goes to the question of how does the Secretary of State today in the Trump administration define his job? And for me, the answer talking to dozens of people who've uh, worked closely with Mike Pompeo uh, in the past and the present came down to an actually a simple answer, which is that his job is not so much out there in the world, as has been the case with many other secretaries of state. It's right here in Washington, and his job is managing President Trump. So let's talk about the biography of Mike Pompeo. First in his class, 1986 graduate of West Point. He then is stationed along the East German-West Germany border before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then he leaves the Army as a captain, goes to law school, comes to Washington, and then ends up in Kansas. Amazing story, right? And I realized I didn't know anything about this guy. And that in the past, that in and of itself made him so unlike any of our recent modern secretaries of state who spent decades in the public life. Uh, and, you know, we, we've been looking at John Kerry since he was a young man protesting the Vietnam War after having served in it. Obviously, Hillary Clinton has, you know, spent decades in, in the public eye. His immediate predecessors as Republican secretaries of state were Colin Powell, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Condoleezza Rice, who'd been national security advisor and a Soviet expert before that, and of course, Jim Baker, uh, the subject of our forthcoming book, as you mentioned. And so Pompeo, in contrast, 10 years ago, he was an obscure congressman from Kansas, not even 10 years ago. He was actually trying to get into politics and was an unknown businessman. So I started looking into it and I realized, well, first of all, he's not even from Kansas. He grew up in Orange County, California, which is fascinating uh, in and of itself. And getting into West Point, as you mentioned, really changed his life. And he excelled there. He was an academic as well as all-around superstar in a way that put him on a fast track to, uh, you know, the top of the American establishment, if you will. He, his Harvard Law School record, again, he didn't just get into Harvard Law School. He was a fantastic student there. He was on the Harvard Law Review. He landed a job, not just any job, in Washington at a, at a top-flight law firm that's very hard to get a job at. And yet he worked so hard for all of that, and after not even basically two years at his law firm job, he essentially blew up his life. He had gotten married the weekend after he graduated from West Point uh, to his college sweetheart. And 
in that same year, basically late 1996, early 1997, he gets divorced from the wife. He quits his law firm job, his prestigious job. His mother passed away from cancer uh, in 1996, and he decides to move to Wichita, Kansas, of all places. His mother's home state, although she was not from Wichita, had not lived there uh, since uh, 1963 was when he was born, and she didn't live there uh, for some time before that as well. So how did that happen? Still somewhat unexplained, he started a company there in Kansas, in Wichita, which is the air capital of the world, as it's known. Boeing and other uh, major aircraft manufacturers had long made a center of operations there. And with three of his best friends from West Point, they started this company, Thera Aerospace. And their idea was to buy up some of these mom-and-pop shops uh, that did essentially service those big aircraft uh, manufacturing companies with niche uh, specialties to kind of buy up some of those businesses and consolidate them into one manufacturing shop. But he didn't do very well. They were not profitable, correct? Well, I think that's where it's interesting, right? Like Mike Pompeo rocketing to the top. You know, this was a detour. This was a detour that actually didn't work out that well. Uh, and for a guy who's been a success up till now and, and an incredible success, I think that must have really uh, uh, been a shattering and, and, and scary experience for him because he got, went to great lengths later when he did go into politics to make sure that we didn't really know the story of what happened in that nine years that he ran that business. He also had an intersection with the Koch brothers, which was transformational because that led to the trajectory of his political career in Wichita. Well, that's right. So the Koch brothers were um, headquartered in Wichita. uh, And of course, Koch Industries is one of the largest, wealthiest and most successful uh, private businesses in America. And in 1998, at the very beginning of this company called Fair Aerospace, uh, the Kochs had a venture capital fund, you know, that they used to invest in businesses. And the Koch's venture fund made a key early investment in their aerospace. And again, what's fascinating about that, right, is that they would become eventually also his largest political benefactors, as well as literally helping to set him up in business. We don't, to this day, really know how that connection was forged, uh, the nature of what was agreed to, or even details about exactly what was put in. What we do know is that for whatever reason, Mike Pompeo uh, has not told the full truth about that relationship. And when he comes to Washington, and you put put this in your piece, the headline in the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, the congressman from Coke. Well, that's right. So flash forward, he basically runs this company for nine years, and we'll talk a little bit about what we later learned happened there. Uh, then he gets into politics, and he runs and wins an open congressional seat in 2010. Wichita's congressional seat is a very Republican district, so winning the Republican primary there is tantamount to winning the election. It's a pretty nasty race. Uh, And after that, he comes to Washington. The Kochs and their funding of the National Republican Party have become the big issue here in Washington at that time. And they're seen as, you know, the sort of uh, dark money funders of the party. And he is the new hometown congressman and also the number one recipient of their campaign largesse that year. And so the Washington Post writes a story about this guy, and he's going to come. He gets a seat on the Energy and Commerce Committee. He's going to help to enact their kind of anti-government regulation, anti-environmental regulation agenda. And 
what happened then, I think, was really remarkable. And it almost stopped me from even reporting about this whole section of the piece. He told the Washington Post in 2011, Pompeo and his aides said that the Cokes had only provided 2% of the investment in his business. Well, we were able to find out in reporting this piece that actually it was about 20%. Uh, so in some ways, it was one of the most strategic uh falsifications I've ever seen from a politician because that was really effective. After that, nobody really uh, looked into this business. His hometown newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, never reported uh, what was really the truth, even though there had been uh, disputes about this that had come up in the 2010 Republican primary. One of Pompeo's opponents that year, a local Republican millionaire named Wink Hartman, he did raise the issue of uh, the performance of Pompeo's business and said that Pompeo had been fired essentially and pushed out of this company that he started because it was in financial trouble. And as far as my reporting suggested, that actually was more or less the case of what happened. And eventually the company uh, was distressed and was sold to um, a private equity firm that specialized in, in distressed companies that had a lot of debt. And Pompeo was made to leave that a year before that sale went through never came out. The local paper didn't do the reporting on it, treated it as a simple kind of he said, he said situation. And then the Washington Post was told by the future Secretary of State that the Koch brothers invested 2% in a company that they actually invested 20% in, that they had two board seats on, that they helped make key management decisions for. The piece is full of so many anecdotes. How did you go about researching this? Who did you talk to? And what surprised you the most? Well, Steve, you know, having been a journalist for a long time uh, and mostly as an editor and being very admiring, having been an editor of great investigative reporters, I didn't set out for this to be an investigative piece so much as a piece about the Secretary of State and Trump's readjustment of American foreign policy. I think it's it's a dramatic moment in time. I was very curious, what is somebody who comes from the Republican establishment, like Mike Pompeo, who was against Trump, you know, what, what does it mean to have somebody running American foreign policy who doesn't really agree with the direction of the president and yet nonetheless is executing it. So I set out to report that and I talked to dozens of people uh, inside the government right now, people who've served in the Trump administration but are no longer there. I talked to foreign diplomats. I talked to his predecessors in the role. I talked to members of Congress who are who served with Pompeo and also who are concerned with foreign policy. And yet I found myself coming back again and again to these unanswered biographical questions. And so I almost reported at the very end of uh, the original story about the Secretary of State, I actually went back then to Kansas and to the earlier periods in his biography to help me answer some of the questions of why would somebody who, who was so on principle opposed to President Trump and what he stood for uh, be willing to make such an accommodation in his views. And I was surprised by what I found. And, and, and in fact, I think it, to me, it ended up being really a learning experience about uh, how little accountability there can be in our political system now. You know, somebody can come essentially from nowhere in, in less than 10 years. His first ever run for office was in 2007, January 2007, right after essentially he's he's had to leave this company that he founded, uh, he ran to be the chairman of the Kansas Republican Party. It was a three-way race. He came in third. Uh, nobody really knew who he was 
just a Wichita businessman. For someone like that, a decade later, to be flying around the world in a big plane that says United States of America uh, and to be representing this particular president at such a fraught moment in in the world with Russia and China resurgent, uh, with so many ongoing threats and a real lack of clarity about uh, what the U.S. is going to do about any of this. Amazing story, right? And so for me, I was really surprised when it turned out essentially he was unvetted. Uh, that was the story of his appointment to Trump's can- uh, cabinet, it turned out, in November of 2016, uh, that he had never met Donald Trump. And one week after the election, Wednesday, November 16th, uh, he is summoned to Trump Tower for an interview, and he's actively pursuing a job, I should say, at this point there. And he was hoping, he told one of my sources, to become either CIA director or the Secretary of the Army. This was the weekend after that historic election. Two days later, he's summoned to Trump Tower. He meets Trump. Two days after that, he has the job. Congressman Devin Nunez, at the time the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said publicly he didn't believe Pompeo had even filled out a questionnaire. He was confirmed then to be CIA director by the Senate. He was confirmed again to be Secretary of State. None of these issues uh, about his company or whether he told the truth about his past uh, were ever raised or even looked into uh, by Democrats or Republicans on Capitol Hill. And my impression is that he was bored in the House, even though the Republicans had the majority. You write that he was considering challenging Senator Pat Roberts in 2014, opted to stay in the House. But let's go to that November 2016 meeting. And my question is, how important was the role of Vice President Pence in getting his name before President Trump? Well, that's a great question. Again, uh, we have just uh, bits and pieces of information to act on here. And and clearly, all the accounts of that period in the transition of President Trump, it was a very tumultuous time. Remember, Chris Christie from New Jersey had been in charge of his transition, and he was fired uh, right after Trump won the election that he didn't expect to win. And uh, so there was a lot of chaos and shuffling. And I believe that there was a key contact for then-Congressman Mike Pompeo via this Koch network that had been providing uh, indispensable both business and then political patronage for him. He had been the number one recipient of Koch network political money in the election years of 2010, 2012, 2014, and 2016. Uh, One key figure in the Koch political network was a guy named Mark Short, who in 2016, the Kochs were very opposed to Donald Trump in the primaries. Again, that's not uncommon. Most of the Republican establishment was. But Mark Short, who had worked for the Koch Network for many years, he then did sign up with Mike Pence when Pence was selected as the vice presidential nominee. Uh, and I believe that Pompeo had overlapped briefly with Pence in the House. He, he praised the appointment of him as the vice presidential running mate. And uh, it appears that Short asked Pompeo to help prepare Pence for the vice presidential debate in the fall of 2016, and that Pence repaid the favor and recommended Pompeo, but so did other people. Uh, The West Point Network was also key for him. Uh, There was a classmate of his from 1986, David Urban, who had gone on to become a Republican consultant, and he ran Donald Trump's campaign in the key state of Pennsylvania, one of three states that brought Trump the presidency. Urban was called by Steve Bannon in the days after the election. 
And he said, what do you think about Mike Pompeo as CIA director? And Urban said, great, yeah, he's my buddy. He'd be great. And Bannon said, well, could you call the old man and tell him that? And so Urban did that. So there was clearly a bunch of people lobbying on Pompeo's behalf. So early in his tenure as the CIA director and shortly after President Trump was sworn in, he traveled to Langley, Virginia, and delivered a speech that you write about that continues to get uh, consternation by critics of the president. Let's listen. I get up this morning, I turn on one of the networks, and they show an empty field. I said, wait a minute, I made a speech. I looked out. The field was, it looked like a million, a million and a half people. They showed a field where there were practically nobody standing there. And they said, Donald Trump did not draw well. I said, it was almost raining. The rain should have scared him away, but God looked down and he said, we're not going to let it rain on your speech. In fact, I, when I first started, I said, oh, no. First line, I hit, got hit by a couple of drops. And I said, oh, this is, this is too bad, but we'll go right through it. But the truth is that it stopped immediately. It was amazing. And then it became really sunny. Then I walked off and it poured right after I left. It poured. But, you know, we have something that's amazing because we had... It looked, honestly, it looked like a million and a half people, whatever it was, it was. But it went all the way back to the Washington Monument. And I turn on the thing, and by mistake, I get this network. And it showed an empty field. And it said, we drew 250,000 people. Now, that's not bad, but it's a lie. That from President Trump, January of 2017. We should point out the field is the National Mall. It's been a long few years, hasn't it? <laughs> that seems like a long time ago, that speech. It was a remarkable moment uh, at the CIA. And yet, equally interesting and fascinatingly, Mike Pompeo, uh, outsider, at a moment when Trump was also not just bragging about his inauguration crowd type, but he, he was also attacking the credibility and independence of the U.S. intelligence community. And he was furious at this moment in time about the uh, burgeoning Russia investigation. He just found out about... Uh, the Steele dossier and the allegations about himself in it. Uh, he was blaming uh, the U.S. intelligence community for somehow having facilitated this. And uh, there were huge worries, uh, which have continued, of course, about the independence and integrity of U.S. intelligence. Pompeo came in and he more or less managed to, to soothe this very, very restive bureaucracy. And clearly, based on your reporting, he enjoyed the job of CIA director. But then fast forward to Rex Tillerson as uh, he stumbles in his relationship with President Trump. He is then forced out. How did Mike Pompeo angle for his current job? Well, that was one interesting thing uh, that I found out, which is to say that, you know, Tillerson was in trouble for a long time, for, for much of uh, the first year, certainly by the summer of 2017, the first year of Trump's presidency. Tillerson was clashing with the president, disagreeing both on policy matters, but also just, you know, his style of actually disagreeing to his face to the president clearly did not go over well. And Trump uh, has encouraged flattery and those who um, deploy it as part of their work. And you know, what I heard from, from very well-placed sources was that Pompeo was almost the number one practitioner of the art of flattering Donald Trump, uh, and uh, that with the possible exception of, of Pence, 
uh, and maybe Stephen Miller, that, that Pompeo was really among the most obsequious of uh, the Trump advisors. And so he took a very opposite tack to how to manage and how to engage with this very difficult new boss than Rex Tillerson did. Then there was also substantively, I believe, and you know, was told that, that in the fall of 2017, as it was clear that Tillerson's days were numbered, that Pompeo really was uh, essentially waging a sort of campaign to get the job himself, and that one of his messages probably implicit as well as explicit was, hey, boss, listen, all these people disagree with you, but I will give you the foreign policy that you want. And we should point out that uh, Rex Tillerson never denied that he referred to the president as an effing moron. Correct. He never denied that. And there were many witnesses to it. It was at a meeting at the Pentagon in the summer of 2017, and then it was reported in the media in the fall of 2017. And I think from that point forward, it was really just a question of time. It took until March of 2018. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Susan Glasser. The piece is Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of Trump. And we'll have more on the piece in just a moment. But uh, joining us on the phone is Peter Baker, who is the co-author of a book on another Secretary of State. The title is The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It will be published next May. Pre-order is available now on Amazon. And Peter Baker, my question to you is, who is the tougher editor, you or your wife, Susan Glasser? (laughs) Well, you know, when my wife, when I met my wife, Susan, she was my editor. We were working at the Washington Post 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically, if you get a good editor, you got to do whatever you can to keep them. And I tell you, she's the best editor I've ever met in my life. Susan, how did this book come about? Well, it's really an outgrowth of Peter's ambitious journalism. We should say that the baker's no relation, by the way. Um, (laughs) Peter's last book was a really fantastic, deeply, deeply reported book. Uh, Well, the book before I guess the second to last book, was called Days of Fire, and it was a, a look at Ch- Bush and Cheney in the White House. And, well, Peter, you should you should tell the story. Well, we, we you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, about researching uh, Bush and Cheney together, of course, and, and, and part of it is their Texas history, and uh, nobody's been more important, than, I think, in Texas Republican politics in recent times than James Baker. He, of course, had been uh, White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, uh, and has a fascinating personal story as well. He's uh, from Houston aristocracy. His wife died in early age, leaving with four boys, a broken family. He ends up marrying her very good friend, and they put together their families. He's not involved in politics, really, until he's age 40, when his tennis partner from the Houston Country Club, a guy named George H.W. Bush, brings him into politics, and from there launches into the you know high echelons of American, uh, American government. And details, of course, in the book. But I am fascinated by the relationship between George H.W. Bush and James Baker. Susan Glasser, we saw an emotional James Baker at the Bush funeral earlier this year. But what was it like? Oh, that's right. And that was an an indelible image, right? Uh, You know, the best friends from the country club tennis courts who managed to steer the country and the world through the end of the Cold War most unexpectedly. And I think, like a lot of relationships, it was... Uh, born as a friendship, and not all of those can survive becoming a professional relationship as well. And what's remarkable, and a political one, what's remarkable is that Baker ran Bush's presidential <coughs> campaign. Uh, then he he was the one who ended up essentially running the Reagan White House uh, 
Bush had the title of vice president, but as we all know, that's, a, that's in some ways a less powerful job than the White House chief of staff. He then, though, returned. He ran Bush's campaign, successful campaign in 1988 to be president, then was his partner and, and sidekick and wingman as secretary of state for this remarkable, remarkable four years that was the end of the Cold War as well as the first Gulf War. And so there was a lot of tension uh, and complicatedness that was very hard to unpack and fascinating to look at uh, when they worked together. But I, I think that image of the funeral is the one that in the end will endure because uh, they were almost like brothers. It's almost like a familial relationship when you're that close to somebody for so many decades. So, you know, I think it was uh, a very complicated one when they were here in Washington running things. Uh, but in the end, uh, it was the brother that you choose. And Peter Baker, why is he essentially viewed as the role model of the modern day White House chief of staff? What was it about the way he approached the job from 1981 until 1985 in the first term of Ronald Reagan? Yeah, he really is seen as the gold standard of White House chief of staff, partly because he's the one who makes, arguably, he makes Ronald Reagan successful, right? Ronald Reagan doesn't win a second term unless his first term goes well, and the person he trusted to run his White House, to, to, to run his administration, was this lawyer from Texas who had no relationship with him before except as an opponent. Then Baker had run not one but two campaigns against Ronald Reagan, first for Ford in, in 1976, and then again in 1980, as, as Susan mentioned, when George H.W. Bush runs in the primaries against him. And yet Reagan saw something in Baker that he needed. He saw somebody who understood how Washington works, somebody who could make uh, the gears of the Capitol grind in the direction that Ronald Reagan wanted them to go. That was always to the, to the liking of Reagan's most fervent supporters. They said that Baker was holding him back. He was too much of a moderate. He wasn't letting Reagan be Reagan. But Reagan understood that basically he wouldn't have been Reagan if he didn't have a Jim Baker at his side to help him push through his tax cuts, push through his defense spending uh, increases, push through his agenda in that first term. So a lot of people look back at Baker as uh, the kind of person who uh, could, could, could make things work. And remember, this is an era when he – he revamped the Social Security Code with the cooperation of Democrats in tandem with Democrats. When he became Secretary of Treasury, he revamped the entire tax code in tandem with Democrats. That seems very foreign to us today, uh, the idea that you can work across uh, the party line to actually accomplish things. But that was the way uh, things worked in Reagan's White House. Peter Baker of The New York Times and the co-author, along with his wife, Susan Glasser, the man who ran Washington at the life and times of James A. Baker III, out next May. Peter, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Susan Glasser, one last quick question about the book. How long did it take for you to research this? Well, it was a project really that lasted over many years, uh, in part because of the election of President Trump. Uh, we've had lots of... Uh, uh, twists and turns along the way uh, that have just extended the time, but basically six years. And going back to your piece on the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, you write the following. He is more political than any recent secretary, with the exception of perhaps Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that's right. I think there are different models of Secretary of State. And by the way, many of them are successful. There's no one model of what works. But uh, if you look at, uh, say, Colin Powell or George Shultz, they are kind of famous for coming and, and, and trying to work with uh, the career foreign service and the, the diplomats who are already in the building. Uh, then you have 
uh, someone like Condoleezza Rice or Jim Baker, who were very, very close to the president and almost, uh, you know, extensions uh, who had helped to create the very identity of the foreign policy that they were also now in charge of executing, right? Uh, you know, Rice was really the, the closest conduit of Bush after having been his first term national security advisor. And then Baker, for the reasons we discussed, was, uh, you know, absolutely almost a partner with George H.W. Bush in foreign policy. So Pompeo is is obviously not that. Hillary Clinton was obviously not that. She came from the Senate. Uh, Pompeo came directly uh, into the Trump administration from the House of Representatives. And I think it's an important uh, insight to see him as a much more political figure in terms of how he's approached the job. And what about his ideology? How is that reflected in his tenure as the Secretary of State? You know, it's been interesting to see uh, uh, over time because he was successful as at CIA in tamping down some of the initial uh, concerns and criticism, in part because Tillerson had managed not only to alienate Trump, but also to alienate the bureaucracy at the State Department. Uh, Pompeo was able to come in and to, to promote and to hire some Foreign Service people. He lifted a very unpopular hiring freeze that Tillerson had imposed. So, so he got pretty good initial marks from the bureaucracy. But I think that papered over to a certain extent the fact that he's brought a very ideological agenda to the State Department, and that's now become more clear in recent months. For example, he just uh, created a new uh, committee uh, stacked with conservatives to uh, review American human rights policy with a view towards, quote-unquote, natural rights. Uh, it seems that he's uh, brought people on board this panel who believe that uh, incorporating rights for, say, LGBTQ people should not be part of official American human rights policy. So there's a lot of worry about that. Uh, there was a, a controversy over ordering, uh, and this was a Pompeo order personally, ordering U.S. mission services not to fly the gay pride flag on Gay Pride Day. Uh, and other actions like that have made him uh, appear to be kind of a Republican congressman uh, at Foggy Bottom. Mitch McConnell wants him to run for the Senate in Kansas. He continues to deny it. But do you think he's interested? Well, he's always been interested in running for Senate. As you pointed out, I was told in the reporting for this piece that he had expressed interest even in primarying a fellow Republican back in 2014. In 2016, he publicly talked for a period about primarying the state's other Republican Senator Jerry Moran before backing away from that. So it's something he's always been interested in doing. Um, what I would say is that it seems more like an exit ramp uh, of the kind that if one were in Trump's high turnover cabinet, you might want to have an exit ramp available to you. Uh, it's an incredible job and it's an incredible privilege to be representing the United States of America as its chief diplomat. And uh, I would imagine that Pompeo would not leave that kind of a position easily. Uh, so I think if he does, that would be telling. And finally, the relationship between President Trump and Mike Pompeo. What's it like? That is the mystery, isn't it? Uh, by all accounts of those who I've spoken with, and I, I did speak with quite a number of people who had seen Trump directly interact with Pompeo, uh, he is very, very careful not to alienate the boss. Uh, in large group meetings, he usually is one of the last people to speak. He, he wants to make sure he's not getting on the wrong side of where Trump ends up on something. Uh, he's not frontally criticizing him uh, or even privately criticizing him. Uh, he's very, very wary, especially because I think he's worried that, that Trump might hold his past opposition against him, 
right? And so he's gone very far in the other direction. And then there was one insight that I closed the piece with that uh, came from uh, a former State Department official who'd worked closely with Pompeo that I thought really kind of captured it. Uh, you know, Trump at the beginning of his presidency, right, he talked about my generals and he hired Jim Mattis and John Kelly, these big brawny people who fit the suit, right, who looked like they were these commanding, authoritative, tough guy figures. Uh, but then he didn't really do so well once they were in office. He fell out with Mattis. He fell out with Kelly. He fell out with H.R. McMaster, his second national security advisor. Uh, Pompeo was never a general. He left the military as a captain. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting insight. When you listen to Pompeo talk, even though he's a diplomat, he still uses very military language. And what he says is he talks about the mission set and the commander's intent and the idea that we're just here executing a mission set that is given to us by the president. I've never heard a secretary of state talk like that. Obviously, it's not something that Jim Baker, who was a Marine, by the way, uh, would say. It's not something uh, even Colin Powell used that kind of language, uh, even though he had spent his whole career in the military. And so I think that's a very important signaling to that audience of one in the Oval Office. We're not going to challenge you. Even if we do disagree on policy, you're the boss, you're the commander, we're going to follow your orders. And on a personal note, he lives very modestly. Well, that's right. As a result of uh, him being actually the poorest member of Trump's cabinet, which was another interesting fact that I knew at the beginning of this, but it was only when I did the reporting around what had really transpired with this company that he started and sold in Kansas that I realized, well, he actually uh, doesn't have uh, a big net worth. In fact, he, he has an incredibly modest net worth for somebody who's 55 years old. He has almost no savings and no ability here in our crazy, expensive Washington area real estate market to to buy the kind of house. His predecessor, Rex Tillerson, bought something like a $6 million house uh, in Washington. That's not something that Mike Pompeo could do. Susan Glasser, a writer and columnist for The New Yorker, the piece, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of Trump. We thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online at cspan.org, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.